0: Hey, everyone. It's Big E. Welcome back to our podcast, a uh, new podcast for Virginia law enforcement officers, uh, law for sheriffs and police. This is a podcast for law enforcement officers who want to do it right, who strive every day to be better and to find new ways to serve and strengthen their communities. Um, it's a podcast that I put together because after so many years of people asking me, how do I you know, stay up on the law? How do I learn the law better? How do I how can I be a better officer? What are the resources out there for me? Uh, you know, I recognize it's really challenging. I mean, you get, you know, a couple of days of training in the academy, you get four hours every two years of legal training provided to you. I mean, that's, uh, and you know, the legal training that you get is, you know, might be on a very specific issue, it doesn't necessarily help you in your everyday work. And so, so many people have asked, hey, how do I stay up on this stuff? Of course, I'm a big consumer of podcasts. I love podcasts. I listen to them all the time because I'm stuck on the road all the time or stuck, you know, or I'm out running or working out or whatever. Uh, what a great way to learn. And then, you know, I don't know why it took me, you know, a decade or more to realize, hey, this is not a bad idea. Maybe this is a good way to deliver training to you guys. So we started um, a few episodes ago, and we I figured why not just dive into the deep end and let's do use of force. Let's talk about something that is... Uh, really topical and really controversial and uh, certainly an issue of concern for officers is, you know, what's the law of use of force? How do courts judge in civil and criminal context the use of force by law enforcement officers? And we've covered uh, in episode one, we talked about the basic federal law, forty uh, two I mean, excuse me, 42 USC, 1983. We've talked about um, state law, uh, Virginia law, common law rights, you know, lawsuits against uh, police for false imprisonment, for assault and battery, uh, for negligence, for injuries due to negligence. We've talked about Graham versus Connor, federal standards for uh, unlaw- for use of non-deadly force. and we've talked about Tennessee versus Garner and federal standards for use of deadly force. And so uh, this is our fifth episode. What I thought I would do is take us back to Virginia. So we you know we've talked about we talked about federal law, uh, generally for civil liability. We've talked about Virginia law generally for civil liability. and Then we took a little deeper dive into the federal laws about use of non-deadly force and federal law about use of deadly force. Today I'm going to talk about Virginia law and I'm going to talk about civil law but I'm also going to talk about criminal law and in some ways that's important because uh, Virginia, like I said, if you if you listen to the second episode we talked about Virginia law the Virginia remedies, if you want to sue somebody for having injured you in Virginia, it's a common law remedy, right? And so if somebody punches me in the face, whether they're a civilian or a police officer, if I want to bring a lawsuit against them, I might sue them for assault and battery. That's the same concept in civil law as criminal law. It's still the same assault and battery, right? It's just that I'm seeking money damages instead of some kind of criminal punishment. Uh, false imprisonment would be the same thing. I could sue somebody... If my, you know, if I'm a door-to-door salesperson and somebody invites me in their house and then they lock me in their house and say I can't leave, I would sue them in a tort for injury for false imprisonment, uh, just like you know you'd you'd prosecute them for abduction, right? The concepts aren't that different, and so when we talk today about police liability for actions in civil court in Virginia, I'm going to talk also at the same time about criminal liability and criminal prosecutions against law enforcement for uh, for uh, uses of force as well and hopefully that'll give you a sense to understand not you know we've talked about federal court but how if you were sued in state court uh, under a state remedy what would happen in the state court and i'm going to use as a lens to examine this uh, one non deadly force case and one deadly force case and i'm using it as a lens for this one civil case and one criminal case to help you kind of better understand how the courts Addressing uses of force in Virginia, uh, so the first case I'm going to talk about is a case called Cromartie versus Billings. This is a really recent case, actually. It's January of 2020, and it's a case from the Virginia Supreme Court. It's a case out of Petersburg, and of course, as always, the facts of the case are important. So let me tell you a little bit of the facts of the case. So this is a case where it's a speed. It's an officer who stopped an individual for speeding. Um, as soon as she stops, at, uh, gets stopped for speeding, the plaintiff in this case jumps out of her car, starts screaming at the officer. Officer obviously gets out of the car and, and orders her to back up, get back in your car. Uh, she does comply initially. Um, he then walks up to her car, her car went, her car is off and she had closed her window. So now you, know, you obviously get a sense of what's going on already. So the officer is knocking on the window, hey man, would you please open your window? She's ignoring the officer. Um, and he says, ma'am, I need you to roll down your window and again, doesn't roll down the window, knocks on the window again, ma'am, I need you to roll down the window. She's on the phone, she's talking and she looks at the officer and says, leave me alone. Well, you know, again, this is, you can see how this is going to turn out. So the officer waits a few seconds and then opens the door, grabs her wrist, pulls her out of the vehicle and throws her down on the ground. And she suffers several injuries. He then arrests her, um, retrieves her purse. He searches her purse. Uh, he finds marijuana. He charges her with obstruction, possession of marijuana, and speeding. So, in the criminal case, it's initially the plaintiff moves to suppress the search, and the court, the Commonwealth doesn't contest the motion to suppress. They agree that there was no lawful search of the purse, uh, and the court dismisses the possession offense. They dismiss the obstruction of justice charge. She gets found guilty of the speeding, uh, and then she files a civil suit against the law enforcement officer. And the case goes all the way to trial. Now you might remember, you know, in these federal cases that I've mentioned, all the federal cases I've mentioned, none of those cases ever went to trial when the Fourth Circuit or the Supreme Court had ruled on them. So I talked about White versus Pauley. I talked about Wilson versus Prince George's County. I talked about. Um, Uh, Whitehurst, uh, ask me, uh, Armstrong versus Pinehurst, all those cases got resolved before trial by a court making a decision based on what was found in discovery and sort of a summary judgment states, basically saying this case doesn't need to go to a jury, or maybe the district court refused to dismiss the case, and so the uh, parties appealed before the case ever went to a jury trial. So that's what happens a lot in federal cases. You never get to trial. Um, these cases get argued uh, and and set up before trial. But Cromartie versus Billing goes to trial, uh, and the jury finds in favor. And again, in Virginia, it's very hard. It's actually very, very, very hard to appeal before the case goes to trial. So this case goes to trial, uh, and the pl- jury finds for the plaintiff. For and they find. And notice here, you'll see a theme: right, assault and battery. They find for the plaintiff on a claim of assault and battery. They find for the plaintiff on a claim of false imprisonment and they also find on a claim of malicious prosecution in other words there was no probable cause to charge her with an offense and so uh, they find for malicious prosecution and the jury makes a finding that the officer did not have probable cause to arrest the plaintiff for obstruction of justice which is interesting right because probable cause is usually a, a legal determination for a judge um, the however and i mentioned this in the first episode so this is a little complicated but it's important in this case The plaintiff also brings claims under 42 U.S.C. 1983, but in state court. The plaintiff doesn't want to leave state court. They want to stay in Virginia in state court. So they bring a claim for unlawful use of, unlawful search, excuse me, uh, under, um, and they also blame a claim for unlawful use of force under 42 U.S.C. 1983 and a claim of false arrest under 42 U.S.C. 1983. So remember, under 1983, the, it's going to get examined. The federal law, you know, the, the rule is still the same. You're going to look at uh, Graham versus Connor, right? You're going to look at the severity of the crime at issue, whether or not the person is actively resisting or evading, excuse me, whether the person poses a threat to you. And then thirdly, whether the person's actively uh, resisting or evading arrest by flight, right? Those three Graham versus Connor factors. So the trial court dismisses all the federal claims. The trial court strikes all the federal claims and says there's not sufficient evidence. We're not gonna uh, there's not gonna be a verdict on the federal claims, but allows the verdict on the state claims. So the case gets appealed, and the Virginia Supreme Court reverses the decision of the trial court <clears throat> to grant the motion to strike and uh, reverses the trial court's decision uh... to dismiss the federal claims on the use of force what's interesting here is this is the plaintiffs appeal the um, the officer does not appeal the verdicts uh, in favor of the plaintiff for the assault and battery for the false imprisonment uh... and for the malicious prosecution so the virginia supreme court looks at this case and sort of says okay um, you know how do we assess the actions of the officer and they apply Graham versus Connor. they look at um, you know, what's the? Um, is there a need for use of force? Is there, yeah, you know, is there a delay in the off- in the in the person complying? Are they resisting? Sure, but the delay was you know a matter of seconds. The person didn't roll her window down, but um, unlike I think there's a, a, a there's an obstruction case called Thorn, where the officers you know end up having to spend I think six to eight minutes trying to get her to lower her window. Ultimately, a bunch of officers have to show up. She gets found guilty of obstruction in that case, but that's a several minutes go by. This officer waits a matter of seconds before um taking the uh, plaintiff out of her car the court found um and again noted here that the court writes here um the officer's aggressive action was unreasonable it escalated this incident to a violent exchange where she suffered numerous injuries Um, the officer grabbed the plaintiff without warning or explanation and so her reaction her you know struggling was basically at that point instinctive and not resistance in the eyes of the court which as a result of the abrupt physical contact by the officer and this is the supreme court's explanation Um, the supreme court explained that here again the jury had made a finding that the officer lacked probable cause and this is important because once the jury finds that the officer lacks probable cause At that point, any resistance on the part of the plaintiff, she's entitled to use because you are entitled to use reasonable force to resist an unlawful arrest. Um, And so therefore, any force that's used by the officer at that point, once there's been a finding of lack of probable cause, is per se excessive. In other words, it cannot be the officer is not entitled to use force um, because he doesn't have the legal right to do so. To effectuate an illegal arrest right so notice here um that the the finding of lack of probable cause is really important to the again in in virginia uh they're going to look at do you have the legal right to use force if you if there's a finding that you don't have a legal right then 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 you're just open to civil liability and again since the the jury in this case makes a finding that the officer didn't have probable cause the court also agreed the officer didn't have probable cause to search her, the plaintiff's purse and the search was not per, per, performed incident to arrest and so therefore um, the search also was unlawful under uh, state law this, this may be a very small point but it's important to know Virginia has a statute 19.259 that provides that officers can be liable under state law for unlawful searches. We very rarely ever talk about it because 19.259 is a statute that essentially um, incorporates or mirrors the Fourth Amendment. In other words, if you have a if you're making a lawful search, then um, under the Fourth Amendment, then the courts have said, well, then you've satisfied 19.259. But on the other hand, if you've made an unlawful search. Then you you do open yourself up to liability under nineteen point two fifty nine under the Virginia Code, and so um, in this case, then the court uh, sent the case back to trial. uh, Excuse me, remanded the case back uh, for an assessment of damages um, for the court to decide what were the damages uh, for the violation of the victims uh, or the the victims of the of the plaintiffs' um, civil rights in this case. So an interesting application of the law for you in a use of non-deadly force right how would a virginia court how would a virginia trial potentially operate in a use of non-deadly force um and i and also a good reminder here too that unlawful searches in virginia can give rise to liability under virginia law Um, and here's that section it's 19.259 i just want to read to you what it says because we don't we don't talk about it very much again because we just sort of you know the fourth amendment is the fourth amendment and and 19.259 just sort of incorporates or um, adopts the fourth amendment as a standard, but the language of it is pretty strong. And here's what it says. And this code section has been around, um, actually been around since long before uh, the the modern Virginia code, 1950 Virginia code. It's been around, it was back when, under 19.1. So it's been around for at least, I think at least 50 years. Um, This is what the code section says. No officer of the law, Or any other person shall search any place, thing, or person except by virtue of and under a warrant issued by a proper officer. Now again, the court has said the Fourth Amendment, the exceptions of the Fourth Amendment apply, so it's not like this is a command you can't do a search without a warrant. But you have to have a lawful exception of the search warrant to do a search. Any officer or other person... Searching any place, thing, or other, or person otherwise than by virtue of and under a search warrant shall be guilty of malfeasance in office. Any person, any officer or person violating the provisions of the section shall be liable to any person aggrieved thereby in both compensatory and punitive damages. And any officer found guilty of a second offense in the section shall, upon commission thereof, immediately forfeit his office. Um, and so, you know, this can be an offense. The whole malfeasance of an office thing is very confusing. And um, if you're interested in it, we can talk about it in another episode. There's a lot of debate about what that means, malfeasance in office. There's not real understanding. I don't think we have an understanding as prosecutors, and the courts don't really have an understanding of how you be prosecuted for the offense of malfeasance of office. Um, There have been some really interesting recent cases uh, about attempts to prosecute under these code sections, but the important thing for you to understand to take away from this is, again, that if you violate the Fourth Amendment under 19.259, you can be liable to the person aggrieved in both compensatory and punitive damages under state law. Um, When we talk about so we've talked about deadly force and i want to shift gears a little bit now and talk about i mean we have talked about non-deadly force and i want to talk about deadly force now and how virginia law judges deadly force is actually by law enforcement officers um, is actually kind of in flux right now and there's this case called rankin versus commonwealth that is a court of appeals case it's a court of appeals opinion from april of 2018 and we've been waiting for the virginia supreme court to issue a ruling on this case and they, uh, as of yet, have not issued a ruling. I know that this case is—I think this case got argued before the U.S. Before the Virginia Supreme Court, but the Virginia Supreme Court has not given a ruling. And so, I'm going to tell you about Rankin, and I'll just tell you to sort of stay tuned. I'll tell you what the Court of Appeals ruled, and I'll tell you to stay tuned. Now, like I said, this is a criminal case. So this is Rankin versus Commonwealth. Mister Rankin, the officer, uh, was prosecuted in the city of Portsmouth for homicide in a shooting case. But I think it also is helpful to understand under Virginia state law, uh, because again, the torts are the same, the injuries are the same, right? Um, it, you know, We're just talking about, is it a common law criminal offense or common law civil offense? The Courts are, I think, going to judge it in a similar way. Um, the main difference being, in a criminal case, the evidence has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. In a civil case, it's just got to be proved by a preponderance of the evidence. So what happens in Rankin? Again, facts are important. Um, the defendant in this case, Mr. Rankin, is a police officer in Portsmouth. And he had tried to detain a, uh, a larceny suspect, but the larceny suspect fought with the officer. The officer used his taser on, tried to use his taser on the larceny suspect, but the suspect um, knocked the taser away. At that point, then, the struggle continues. The officer uh, draws his gun. He orders the suspect to get on the ground. Um, however, at that point, the suspect made a, a quick and aggressive gesture towards the officer, and the officer shot and killed the suspect. Um, so at trial, a couple of different issues come up here. But one of the things that the victim, uh, excuse me, the defendant in this case tries to do, is admit the testimony of an expert who would have testified that the defendant's conduct, the officer's conduct, was consistent with the well-established and widely adopted police training uh, and uses and policies concerning the use of force, and also would have testified that the officer's actions were consistent with the police department's use of force policy. Essentially, then, what you know, he was trying to argue was, let's look at this in the eyes of a reasonable police officer. What would a reasonable police officer um, have believed under the circumstances, under the facts and circumstances? And, you know, in short, then, what he's trying to do, I think, or, you know, I think one view of it is he's using the Tennessee versus Garner uh, uh, standard here. He's saying, is there probable cause to believe uh, that the officer had, you know, believed that there was a a a, a um a imminent threat of serious bodily harm to himself or somebody else, and and the use of force policies and training that we get under Tennessee versus Garner, then would that use of deadly force have been consistent? The trial court, however, denies that they don't allow the expert to testify, and they simply allow the case to go to trial, and the defendant is convicted by the jury of voluntary manslaughter so um at this point then it's useful to kind of take a step back and understand what that means right so in virginia we have a bunch of different types of different bunch of levels of homicide right we have first degree murder we have second degree murder we have felony murder we have uh we have voluntary manslaughter we have involuntary manslaughter what the heck do all of these things mean? Before we talk about this case and what the court rules in this case, it's it's worthwhile, I think, to go back and understand uh, what the different types of murder are in Virginia, what they mean, and um, because again, I think you probably learned this. I'm guessing your first day of the academy. In other words, maybe your. F- Maybe your second, no, literally, I think the first day. I think the first thing they teach you at the Academy, at least if you're following the DCGS curriculum, is you get in there, it's your first day, you have no idea what's going on. You sit down at, you know, seven o'clock or eight o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock in the morning, some bozo gets up there and starts talking to you about homicide and the grades of homicide, right? And that's the first day of the academy. And maybe in my guess is you've never talked about it again since the first day of the academy. So you took a test maybe a couple of days after that <clears throat> and then that was it you've never learned this again right so uh, let's step back and let's go over that material because it's important for this case right so in virginia we have first degree murder right first degree murder is murder other than capital murder um, that's by poison lying in wait imprisonment starving or by any willful deliberate and premeditated killing okay so that's the first kind of first degree murder i'm not gonna talk about capital murder because that's very specific kinds of murders uh, capital murder is like you kill in, in Instead of 12 or 15 different circumstances, you kill a law enforcement officer, you kill a pregnant woman, you killed more than two people in a three-year period, blah, blah, blah. Those are all specifically defined. But first-degree murder in general is premeditated murder. Okay, And, uh, and in this case, obviously, it's not premeditated. Um, or it's murder in the commission of or the attempt to commit certain offenses. So murder in the commission of arson, murder in the commission of rape, murder in the commission of forcible sodomy or sexual assault, robbery, burglary, or abduction, those are um, uh, first degree murders. So we don't have any of those in this case, right? So that's not really the issue. Second degree murder, however, is sort of all murder, right? Second degree murder is homicide as long as it is committed with some form of malice. And there's a presumption in Virginia law that any time that you kill someone, it's second degree murder. So Let me give you an example. So you show up and there's a guy who's uh, dead on the floor and there's a guy who's standing there and you're like, hey, uh, what happened to the guy on the floor? And the person who's standing there says, I killed him. And you say to the person, well, why did you kill him? And the person's answer is, I want a lawyer. Okay, so that's all you ever know. You know that the person, there's a person dead on the floor, and the person standing there is saying, I killed him. So the person dead on the floor, the medical examiner says, uh, this person was um, uh, strangled. This person was uh, asphyxiated. Um, so that's how the person died. So you don't know what happened, right? You don't know really the facts. You don't really know what, what precipitated it. You don't know why the person killed him. They never say. There's no explanation. People don't really know each other, Um But you know that the person said I killed him. That's all you know. So that would be second-degree murder, right? Because there was a presumption that any murder is second-degree murder. But the law requires there be some, you know, malice, right? Um, And so if there, unless, however, of course, you have murder in the commission of a felony, if the person is already committing a felony and then they kill the person in the course of this felony, then that's already, that's also can be, uh, second degree murder, some kind of felony act. And the felony act, you know, an example of this, um, we lost Officer Katie Tyne in Newport News earlier this year. She was killed by an individual who was fleeing from the police. So if he's committing the felony eluding, and in the course of committing the felony eluding, he kills Officer Tyne, uh, then that would be an example of second degree murder. That's um, basically felony murder, is what we consider to be felony murder. We call it felony murder. Again, this officer hasn't committed any felony, any felony offense, um, so we're again sort of stuck with well, is it second degree murder? Well, if it's if it's a murder, if it's a malicious act, um, then and he's killed another person, then it would be second degree murder. So then we say, okay, well we have we have murder and we have manslaughter. So what is manslaughter? Well, manslaughter is when you've unlawfully killed somebody. You've killed someone without any lawful justification, but you don't have malice. Um, it's it's a murder without malice. So that's the main difference between second-degree murder and manslaughter is the lack of malice. It's the uh, Manslaughter is the unlawful killing of another person committed in the course of maybe a quarrel or mutual combat or sudden provo- provocation without any previous grudge, And is um, is in general the killing from a sudden heat of passion, growing solely out of the quarrel or the combat or the uh, provocation, and so you this is a this ends up being a very complicated. Uh, issue, if you've ever tried to get, you know, ever, ever had a case of a malicious wounding, and sometimes the malicious wounding is reduced to unlawful wounding, right, that the difference between malicious wounding and unlawful wounding is essentially this heat of passion difference, right? Malicious wounding is wounding with malice. Unlawful wounding is wounding without malice. And to prove the wounding is without malice, oftentimes, Uh, Most of the time, the defense is going to have to put on some argument of heat of passion. And so the difference between malicious wounding and unlawful wounding is the same difference between murder and manslaughter. There is a lot of debate and we're not going to talk about it today very much, but I just want you to be aware. There's a lot of debate about whether or not it's the defendant's responsibility to prove the heat of passion. It's the defendant's responsibility to prove the lack of malice and to to bring the charge from malicious down to unlawful, to bring the charge from second degree murder down to manslaughter or whether the jury um, is entitled to do that on its own or whether the Commonwealth you know, has to put on evidence that there's an you know, unlawful killing and that kind of stuff. So a lot of debate about that, interesting issue, but that's the difference between murder and manslaughter. Murders with malice, manslaughter is without malice. Um, you've also probably heard of involuntary manslaughter. Involuntary manslaughter is the killing of somebody accidentally, contrary to their intention, uh, when they're doing something that's unlawful but not felonious, Um, or when they're improperly performing a lawful act. Sort of the classic example of this is if you're committing reckless driving and you kill someone in the course of your reckless driving, right? And the statutes actually are written to cover the specific situation of you driving intoxicated and killing someone. That's a special kind of involuntary manslaughter. I'm driving intoxicated, I kill someone, it's an accident to kill somebody. I don't mean to kill them. It's not part of my attention. Oftentimes the person that I kill is a person in the car with me, right? You've seen this Probably responded to this call before many times. Someone's intoxicated; they crash; they kill their passenger. Uh, they didn't mean to kill their passenger. They didn't want to kill their passenger, but the passenger is dead because of their unlawful act—the DUI. But the DUI is not a felony offense; it's a misdemeanor usually. So it's uh, DUI involuntary manslaughter. So in this case that we have with the officer getting, getting back to Officer Rankin, we don't have an involuntary. We don't have the officer committing a misdemeanor, um, and and it's not really an accident. Um, that the officer kills him. The question is, is it second-degree murder? Is it voluntary manslaughter? Or is it a lawful use of force? Um, And the officer obviously wants to bring in the federal standard and say it's a lawful use of force. Under the federal standard, it's a lawful use of force. So the case goes to the Court of Appeals. And I'm going to tell you what the Court of Appeals rules. But again, I want you to understand, we're waiting for the Virginia Supreme Court to make a ruling on this. And uh, it's been... Uh, really two years um, since the Court of Appeals ruled on this case, and we don't have a ruling from the Virginia Supreme Court yet. So really curious to see what they're going to rule. The Virginia Court of Appeals, and this is the law right now um, under the Court of Appeals ruling, established the standard by which the court had to evaluate the officer's use of force and detailed how to judge the use of deadly force by an officer in this case. And so the court uh, explains and writes that the that a jury has to consider whether the officer's killing was, again, what form of homicide it was. Was it first-degree murder? Was it second-degree murder? Was it voluntary manslaughter? Or was it justifiable self-defense? And so, as a consequence, then, the jury has to decide the officer's state of mind. Is the officer killing somebody in a willful, deliberate, and premeditated way? Is the officer acting maliciously? Is the officer acting intentionally? Or is the officer acting in a sudden heat of passion? Um, All these things are gonna have to be decided, the same kinds of questions you decide in any homicide case. And the court further uh, explained that if the jury determines that the officer acted without malice, but instead um, in fear of harm, then that sort of takes it into the realm of self-defense. In other words, now the court's going to have to decide whether or not the officer acted lawfully uh, in in self-defense. So the court noted then, of course, that the uh, the defense of self-defense requires a finding that the officer's use of force was reasonable in relationship to the threatened harm. So now I want to pause for a second and and, and, and and talk about self-defense in Virginia, right? Because what the court is really saying here is that we, in a case of use of force by a law enforcement officer, we're going to use the same law, the same standard that we would use. Uh, in a civilian use of force case. So if a civilian was in a parking lot with some guy and he gets on an argument with the guy, and during the course of the incident, the civilian uses deadly force, uh, we're going to look at it as a self-defense case. Now, this is complicated, and we're talking about why in a second, and, and this is problematic for officers, but you know the standard in Virginia for self-defense is it's a defense of necessity. You admit that you've killed someone, but you say, I had an excuse, I was under duress, I was in a situation where I had to use the force. <clears throat> and so the definition here, but self-defense can be either ex- justifiable or excusable homicide. And there's two forms of self-defense. There's self-defense where it's without fault and there's self-defense with fault. Self-defense without fault is I'm just sitting in a park bench, I'm minding my own business, some guy runs up with a knife and starts trying to stab me. I pull out a gun and I shoot him. I didn't do anything. Um, I'm not required to retreat. I can use such forces as is necessary Um, to protect myself from the threat but if I start a fight with somebody in a park I don't like that the person is you know making a lot of noise and I go over and I say hey buddy shut up and he says I can do what I want first amendment then I start shoving the guy and saying well then you can get out of here and I start shoving him and pushing him and he fights back and he starts pushing me and I punch him in the face and then he pulls out a knife on me well I'm the one who started the fight so I then do have a duty to retreat Um, Self-defense with fault requires me to retreat, um, but uh, again, then I can only use self-defense if I um, if I if I've already tried to retreat, I've failed to retreat, and then I have a reasonable apprehension of death or serious bodily harm. Um, And uh, and so there's a real so again, you have two forms of self-defense, and um, you have to in the case if you haven't cause the fight. You don't have to retreat. And then in that situation, um, if you're without any fault, without any fault, you kill another person under reasonable apprehension of death or serious bodily harm, you have a complete defense. That's self-defense. But if you do have fault and you did bring on the fight, um, then you must flee as far as you can, um, unless you're prevented from doing so. There's no way to do so physically. Um, and then your response um, must be uh, in a response to manifest danger for your life or serious bodily harm and uh, and and so the question in this case that the court never really addresses is all right if we're going to apply the law of self-defense for law enforcement officers is it excusable self-defense is it justified self-defense is it self-defense with fault or self-defense without fault And the court never really explains that in this particular case. But they do say that a jury has to decide whether or not the officer's use of force was reasonable in relationship to the threatened harm. And so in this case, you go back to your training, right? What is is your training relevant? Well, the court said, yeah, the officer's training is relevant. And in this case, there was evidence before the jury about the department's training and policies regarding use of force. And in fact, the department's policy manual was admitted So it's proper for the jury to consider the fact of whether or not of what the officer's training was and what his policy was on use of force, right? Because that will tell you, uh, that will provide you, you know, some context to decide whether your use of force is reasonable. But that's really up to the jury, not up to the expert in the eyes of the court. And so it was proper to exclude the expert. Um, They said, again, the issue here is um, whether the officer followed the criminal standards in Virginia, whether or not he... Used reasonable force in relationship to the th- the, the, the threat as he perceived it, uh, and that and and whether or not the department policy permitted the officer to use force or didn't permit the officer to use force, doesn't really answer that question, and so they excluded that uh, from the consideration for the jury. Um. So, here again, it's important to recognize this case is going is pending before the Virginia Supreme Court, but you can see what the issues are here in this case, right? You can see that. You know, an officer, unlike a regular citizen, doesn't have the, um, you know, it is supposed, unlike a regular citizen, is supposed to go up and initiate encounters with the person. This person, in this case, uh, stole something from a store. So the officer is supposed to bring about a confrontation with this individual in order to get the store's property back and to make sure that the person who stole the property is held responsible for stealing. So it, it it's a little paradoxical to try to apply the, you know, self defense with fault. Um, standard to the officer. But you can't just use pure uh, justifiable self-defense because the instruction on that says, you know, it's in the instructions that you give to a jury that says the person's without fault in bringing on the threat. Well, a jury would be confused by that because a jury would look at that and say, well, the officer is the person who started the encounter. I mean, he's legally supposed to start the encounter. He's legally supposed to grab the guy and put him in handcuffs. But uh, you can see why it's a struggle. But the core question is, in this case is interesting and i think what the court poses here in this the court doesn't explain what to do in that they just say a jury is supposed to decide whether the officer's use of force is reasonable in relationship to the threat that he perceived and that is the same question that civilians have to have to answer uh, in use of force situations daily force situations as well and so if i want you to take away anything from today's podcast it is that in virginia it appears at this point where the law is that officers and civilians are viewed basically the same that they have the same right of self-defense that and they're going to be viewed the same when they use deadly force that if your uh, if your deadly force is reasonable in relationship to the threat that's posed to you that is going to be viewed to be justified but if your use of deadly force is not reasonable in relationship to the threat in other words you're not facing an imminent threat of serious bodily harm uh, then you know, you're going to be found to be criminally liable just like a civilian would be as well. Now, of course, this can change. The law can change. And the General Assembly can step in and make their own laws as well. Uh, many states have done that. And you know who knows, maybe the General Assembly in Virginia will do that as well. Um, so that's what I got for you today. Hopefully, it was interesting. Um, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Uh, if you've got topics that you want me to cover, reach out to me and let me know. Otherwise, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.